Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask, what does this mean? And then Peter addresses the crowd and talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 were added to the church that day. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, as many of you know, I was away a couple of weeks ago, yes, on vacation too, but actually there was a better reason, and that is I attended the meeting of the Board of World Missions of the Christian Reformed Church. There were 18 board members at the meeting representing all the regions of the denomination. And as I thought about the board meeting and I thought about the folks sitting at the table, I thought about the events of Pentecost. Let me tell you what I mean. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, 50 days, the word Pentecost means 50, 50 days following the resurrection of Jesus, God basically reversed that which had happened at the Tower of Babel so many thousands of years earlier. Whereas people were divided by their languages, now with the coming of the Spirit, people from all over the known world were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own languages, and they responded. And in their response, there was unity the kind of unity demonstrated by those sitting at the World Missions board table. Men, women, Canadians, Americans, pastors, lay people, a Dutchman, a Korean, a Filipino, a Nigerian, a Swede, a Latino. All sorts of languages, cultures, and gifts were represented, and yet we were united in one faith, and busy with the advancement of one gospel. That's what Pentecost has done. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the world is filled with disunity. We heard about that, we prayed about that this morning in the prayer. Nation fights against nation, tribe against tribe, and while often different faiths are to blame. Over the centuries, it's also been that one of the major sources of conflict in our society and world boils down to language. As Canadians, we can certainly identify with the language issue, 
and with the tremendous stress and antagonism even that societies have to deal with when there's one or two or two or more major language groupings within the population. For centuries, the differences and struggles between the English and the French populations of this land have been part of our history, known as the two solitudes. In fact, there were those who were back, and some of you may remember this, back in the 1960s and early 70s, who claimed that indeed the greatest reason for conflict in the world is the language barrier. And the proposed solution to the language barrier and the resultant battles was the creation of one international language. And it was hoped that if everyone spoke the same language, all the problems and all the conflicts in the world would be solved. Rather simplistic to say the least, but nonetheless an intriguing thesis. And the proposed language was not English, but it was Esperanto, meaning hope. This new universal language was to bring understanding and peace to the world because finally everyone would be able to understand everyone else. That was the utopian hope of a number of people. The Bible, of course, would have us know that a language such as Esperanto or any other universal language for that matter cannot solve the world's problems. Only Christ can through the working of the Spirit. The problems in this world ultimately lie much deeper than simply the fact that there are a multitude of languages. There are, after all, lots of people speaking the same language, but they're not unified either. The problems of this world, the Bible would tell us, tell us, are rooted in the sinful heart, rooted in human rebelliousness, human arrogance, all arrayed against the Lord and his anointed. And the story, or the story that we read earlier from Genesis 11 tells us all about this. After the flood, which is where that story comes, right after the, the flood with Noah, after the flood in which God destroyed the human race with whom he had become very angry because of their hardness of heart and sin, there was but one language on earth. The language spoken by Noah and his family. One tongue. Now once Noah had stepped out of the ark onto dry ground, the Lord mandated him and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it populate the earth, not in one spot, that wasn't God's idea, but all over the earth. Noah's family stuck together. They traveled together until they came to a plain in the land of Shinar. And fearful that they would be scattered all over the earth, they decided to settle down in that particular plain. It was a very large one. They could easily multiply there and not have to move. Now remember that in spite of the fact that the flood came and destroyed the sinful human race and destroyed lots of stuff, sin was not destroyed. Sin was still with people and continued to plague the human race even after the flood. And it was on that plain of Shinar that Noah's descendants began to build with great enthusiasm. And in the city... 
They built a large tower. A tower is a landmark or a rallying point. And the city and that tower basically became monuments to people's arrogance and self-reliance because it appeared that the tower began to replace the living God as the integrating center of communal life. So these people on that plain of Shinar set up an earthly kingdom, a secular city, in order to ensure their survival, to make a name for themselves. But God was not in the least impressed. Now what happens to the people on, what happened to the people on the plain of Shinar is usually what happens to those who no longer place the Lord at the center of life. They invariably become afraid. And once a tower or something else becomes the center of one's life, then the sure and solid foundation of the truth that our help is in the name of the Lord is gone. Had the people indeed trusted in the Lord and believed his covenant promises that were reaffirmed this morning in the sacrament of baptism, God would have gone with them and protected them as they carried out the cultural mandate, namely to fill the earth and subdue it. Had the people trusted in the Lord, they would have remained spiritually unified in a common faith, but that's not what they wanted. That's not the road they took. They relied on their own strength and power and built their monument or their own God. And in Psalm 2, we hear what God does with all that. In Psalm 2, we read concerning the Lord and his stance toward those who rebel against him. The one enthroned in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He has them in derision. Well, this must have been one of those instances in which the Lord laughed and scoffed at the futile and feeble and fickle efforts of people. People thought they could save themselves. But the Lord knew better. And seeing what the people were doing on the plain of Shinar, the Lord came down to have a closer look at the city and the tower. And he brought his judgment to bear upon the disobedient, non-trusting, non-believing people. He didn't allow them to continue with their grandiose building project. He created disunity by breaking up their linguistic unity. And people began to think and express themselves differently from their neighbors. The result was mass confusion on the construction site, as you can well imagine. People didn't understand each other anymore. And the language barriers caused alienation and estrangement, and eventually people left that place and began to fill the earth. And one of the reasons that the unity was destroyed was because it was a false unity. The only real lasting unity that we can find is in Christ, which is precisely why the whole story of the Tower of Babel, and if you have it open, you can look at it in Genesis 11, why the whole story of the Tower of Babel is followed by verse 10. The unity of mankind had been destroyed by the judgment of God. But as often happens in the Bible, especially in the whole history of salvation, God's judgment is followed by an expression of God's mercy, 
which is intended to overcome the judgment. And as with Adam and Eve, the Lord judged the people on the plain of Shinar, but in the same breath, he offered redemption. That's always the way God works. In Genesis 11:9, we read the judgment of God. The language is confused. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And that's then quickly followed by verse 10, which reads, This is the account of Shem. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but that basically means this is the account of God's mercy. And then what follows is a whole list of names, which end at Abram. This is the redemptive genealogy. And Abram, or Abraham, was the father of all believers of all nations, and from him and from his line came the Lord Jesus. And so after all the judgment at Babel, God immediately offered his solution to the confusion, his son, Jesus Christ. We saw something of that again this morning in the sacrament of baptism. And this is precisely where the Pentecost story comes in. Because it's at Pentecost that the story of Babel's judgment is reversed. It's at Pentecost that we see so vividly displayed for us the contrast between the disunity of the human race and the unity of the body of Christ, all affected by the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit brought into being a new community welded together into one fellowship of love and understanding by the universal language of the gospel. On that great day, a new language was spoken, not Esperanto, but a language of real hope of redemption. It's a language that unites us through all barriers of race and nation and class and language such as which would divide us in a sin-disrupted society. And this is the language that already prophesied by the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. That's exactly what I witnessed at the board meeting of World Missions. All sorts of different people from all different parts of this continent standing shoulder to shoulder in a common faith and cause. Think of it. At Babel, nations came into being, nations alienated from God, separated from each other, growing in their own might and achievements, spiritually powerless. At Pentecost, which we're celebrating today, all this was reversed and overcome. At Pentecost, the Jewish representatives of the nations were gathered in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of the wheat harvest, as commanded by God in Leviticus 23. They were there for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And while in Jerusalem, they heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus being preached in their own language. And Luke lists the areas represented, the areas known today as Iran or Persia, known today as Iraq and Judea, the areas known today as Turkey and Egypt and Rome and Crete and Arabia, basically people from the whole of the Middle East. 
They all heard one gospel message about the mighty works of one God through his son, Jesus Christ. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, the language barriers between them and the disciples in the upper room were broken down. Of course, that's what the Holy Spirit's in the business of doing. He's in the business of breaking down the dividing walls of hostility, to use Paul's language. And now the nations, or at least believers from all nations, called on the name of the Lord and began to serve shoulder to shoulder. Some 3,000 were added that first day already. And it's so interesting when you read this chapter later and when you read about the 3,000 being added to the church that first day, we're not told where they're from. We're not told that 50 were from Iran and 50 were from there and 100 were from there. That's irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. They were no longer separated from one another. They were united in one faith, speaking a common language of praise and thanksgiving to God. They simply became the people of God, the people of the Lord. And that's what Pentecost is all about, namely the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the new Jerusalem of which we are a part, along with Presbyterians and Anglicans and Lutherans and Pentecostals and Roman Catholics, all those who confess Jesus Christ and Lord, as Lord and Savior are part of that new body of Christ. And so today we stand shoulder to shoulder, as Zephaniah put it, with fellow Christians in all sorts of different denominations, in all sorts of different cultures, in all sorts of different countries, and speaking all sorts of different languages, and yet we speak one language of praise and thanksgiving, one language of confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. And such a confession on our part and on the part of all who are part of the body is possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is indeed true unity. This is greater unity than any constitutional degree de decree or any legislation can hope to achieve. The unity rooted in Jesus Christ and in his saving power is more powerful and for that matter even more important than the unity of a family, a nation, or a group of sports fans. And some of us have experienced firsthand in our own lives, that we can have a greater sense of belonging and oneness with fellow Christians than we can have with our own biological brothers and sisters. The power of the church of Jesus Christ is to be that more and more the reality of the power of Pentecost be made visible in this world. The prayer of the church is that more and more we can see Christians, God's people, standing together on issues, on challenges against evil, and with a presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. All our differences as Christians may not necessarily be erased. They may not even have to be. But we must work together, continue to walk hand in hand, building the kingdom of heaven and we can do this because the Spirit, one Spirit, has been poured out on the body. 
And when we don't walk together and when we don't stand together, it must grieve the Spirit. And you know, when the kingdom comes in all its fullness, all the things that will divide his people will disappear. And then we probably will be incredibly embarrassed about some of the things we squabbled about or disagreed about. But the true church of Jesus Christ will stand shoulder to shoulder, literally, in the presence of the Lord. Pentecost anticipates that day. From the brokenness of Babel to the unity in the Spirit at Pentecost. What a day. What a celebration. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. Yes, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Indeed, in Christ, we are one. Praise God for his church. Amen.